1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And when we think about improving our health, we typically think about diet, trying to exercise more, taking vitamins and supplements. My guest today argues that none of that stuff really matters if we haven't improved something even more foundational our breathing. His name is James Nestor, and his latest book is Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art. At the beginning of our conversation, James explains why he paid thousands of dollars to have his nose plugged up and what happened to his body when he could only breathe out of his mouth. We unpack the dangers of the common problem of being a habitual mouth breather, including the fact that he even changed the shape of our faces and why modern humans started breathing through their mouth rather than their nose in the first place. James then reveals what happened when he switched his experiment around and breathed only through his nose and explains why simply switching the passageway of your breathing from oral to nasal can have such significant health benefits. He also shares his weird trick to switch from mouth to nose breathing at night, which I've tried myself and I've found effective. We then discuss the importance of getting better at exhaling and why you counterintuitively probably need to be thinking more about getting more carbon dioxide in your body rather than oxygen in the latter part of our conversation, we discuss more advanced breathing techniques, including hypoventilation training, where you double your exhale to inhales to you acclimate yourself to higher levels of CO2, as well as other experimental breathing techniques that may allow people to take conscious control of the supposedly involuntary autonomic nervous system in order to boost immunity and heal diseases. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is breath. All right. James Nestor, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So we had you on a couple of years ago to talk about your book, Deep, which is about free divers. and These are people who train themselves to, without any aid of oxygen to just go down as far as they can in the ocean, and they're down there for minutes at a time. And you were talking about the science of this. While you're researching this book and doing this, you were yourself were dealing with some breathing problems. What were the type of problems you were struggling with and what made you think, well, maybe if these free divers could train themselves to breathe better, maybe I can do that too. I'd been surfing a lot at Ocean Beach and you know, exercising a bunch and
0: thought that just chronic bronchitis was just part of the game because everyone I knew was having some sort of respiratory problem or or another, be it allergies, asthma, bronchitis on occasion. I was getting mild pneumonia, uh, year after year, it wasn't any big deal. i just take antibiotics and be on with it. And again, I didn't expect that anything was wrong until I saw my doctor and she's like, hey, I think you're, you're not breathing properly and it could be exacerbating or maybe even causing these problems. So she suggested I go to a breathing class. And I, I did that, had this very weird experience just sitting in the corner of this cold room here in San Francisco, breathing in this rhythmic pattern. And I sweated through my T-shirt, my hair was sopping wet, sweat stains on my jeans. I mean, it was completely wild, unlike anything I'd experienced. And I thought, wow, something's going on here. I wonder what the science has to say about this. And so that that was really beyond freediving, where I saw the potential of breathing for underwater research. I also started wondering what breathing could do for the rest of us on land. And that's what
1: really set me off. And it set you off in a new book, and went on these all these crazy scientific adventures. <laughs> and the first one is the craziest because you you basically you paid five thousand dollars to have a doctor plug up your nose. Uh, what were you hoping to learn by doing that? Yeah, this was never intended.
0: Uh, so this was never ever part of my plan. It's funny people read the book and they think that I had placed myself, you know, in these situations on purpose, but it was through total happenstance. The doctor, uh, he's the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, so knows everything about the nose. And I had had several interviews with him, long, hours-long interviews. And he kept telling me, about all the the wondrous things the nose can do how it can help fight off viruses how it conditions air how it allows us to absorb more oxygen and he kept also telling me about how bad it was that so many of us are breathing through our mouths like something like 25 to 50% of us are chronic mouth breathers and i think i was breathing through my mouth a lot too cuz i didn't didn't know the difference and so i asked him i said well how soon does this this damage from mouth breathing come on that includes Neurological problems, it includes respiratory problems, poorer athletic performance, all of that. And that that's been known for a while, but nobody really knew how quickly it came on. And he didn't know no one had conducted an experiment with it, so I volunteered for an experiment. Of course, Stanford didn't have money for this this kind of uh, research, so we had to pony up the cash ourselves. And and it was even more than five grand. So I used
1: a big chunk of my book advance to to do this because I was curious to see what would happen. So basically, he he stuck plugs up your nose um, and then taped like you you couldn't breathe through your nose. How soon did you start noticing changes in your breathing and how it influenced your health? Yeah, so so that was the plan is for 10 days,
0: silicon up the nose, tape over that to inhibit even the slightest amount of air entering the nose. So me and one other subject, a breathing therapist named Anders Olson, we were only mouth breathing for 10 days and we were recording what was happening in our brains, physiological data three times a day, every single day. And we found that mouth breathing, we knew it was bad. We didn't know it was going to be this bad. I mean, within a few hours, my, I mean, this is a few hours of switching our, our breathing. My blood pressure shot up about 20 points. That night, my snoring increased 1300%. Within three days, I was snoring through half the night. I hadn't been snoring before doing this. Anders, the other subject in the experiment, suffered the exact same damage We're stressed, fatigued, I mean, you name it. And to me, this explained, at least partly, why so many people are are suffering from so many of these chronic problems. It's just switching the pathway of your breathing, just breathing through the mouth can really exacerbate so many issues.
1: All right, so you did this scientific experiment to get data on how bad mouth breathing is for you, but it was something that earlier cultures uh, already knew intuitively, For example, you talk about tribes where the parents would close their baby's lips with their fingers to keep them from breathing with their mouths.
0: Yeah, you can trace this back several thousand years, actually, in many early Hindu texts. They were talking about the wonders of nasal breathing. The Chinese wrote seven books of the Tao dedicated to breathing. Of all the bad things that can happen when you do it improperly, they specifically mention mouth breathing. How injurious it is to the body, and they talk about the wonders of nasal breathing. So this spread out through other cultures. And what was interesting to me is you can find this in cultures, but these cultures didn't have direct contact with one another. So they they all came to these same conclusions somewhat independently. And the Native Americans—that's the story you're you're citing—were habitual nasal breathers, and they were so into it that some of them, according to the sources, would hesitate when they when they laughed because they didn't want to open their mouth for even a moment to get air in and when they had infants after they were done breastfeeding they would softly close their lips they'd stand over them at night to see if they open their mouths while they were sleeping and softly close their lips to make this a a habit later on in life to always
1: breathe through the nose all right so if mouth breathing is so bad for you why do modern people do it Hmm.
0: Well, I think we've become. It's become so so normal that you look at people running, you look at people in a gym. When we used to go to gyms, and almost everyone's breathing through their mouth. They're thinking that more oxygen is going to get into their bodies the more they breathe through their mouth. But the opposite is happening. This is such a counterintuitive concept. It took me months to get my head around. But I had thought it was habitual. I thought it was environmental. Our noses get plugged from pollutants or allergies or whatever we have to breathe through our mouth. But it wasn't until I dug deeper into the story and found it's actually caused by evolution of the human skull. That seems nuts, but all you need to do is look at skulls from 400 years ago and look at skulls now, and they've massively changed, especially in the mouth. Our mouths have grown so small Our teeth no longer fit, which is why they grow in crooked. And the other problem with having a too small mouth is you have a smaller airway, which is one of the main reasons so many of us have sleep apnea, snoring, other respiratory issues.
1: Well, and you actually, you go to like a crypt beneath Paris to look at, to find skulls from 400 years ago. I mean, so what would happen? Like, why why have our mouths gotten smaller over the years? Yeah, so uh, that
0: was one of the first expeditions, I really did, because I wasn't able to get into labs. It's hard to get into labs and look at ancient skulls. I had not met the biological anthropologist that I later ended up working with. So I wanted to see what happened to to our skulls uh, up close and personal. And I managed to contact a friend of a friend who took me down to the quarries in Paris, which are about 60 feet below the streets of Paris, 170 miles, and there's 6 million human skulls down there. So I was able to root around and look at skulls down there without anyone looking over my my shoulder, you know, without any any plaques or cautionary ropes. A completely wild experience. So what I learned later after that was that so much of the damage that's been caused uh, to our mouths, to our sinuses, to our ability to breathe is because humans have stopped chewing. If you look at industrialized food, processed flour, processed rice, canned stuff. It's all soft, and without that masticatory stress, especially early in life, mouths don't grow properly. They don't grow wide enough, which is the main reason. There's other things that contribute to this, but that's the main reason so many of us have crooked teeth, and that is also correlated to breathing problems.
1: All right. To kind of add some context here, people have smaller mouths today because they have less exercise chewing on harder food. And that began even before the industrial revolution with industrialized food. It started with the dawn of cooking. So mouths have gotten taller rather than wider. And your nasal cavity, your sinuses, get smaller as a result, which leads to a preference for mouth breathing. And it gets more interesting still because being a mouth breather can actually change the shape of your face too.
0: Yeah, it's so common that it's it has an official name. It's called adenoid face. When kids get inflamed adenoids or tonsils, they have to breathe through their mouth. And if you do this for so many years, it can actually change the skelicature of your face, and it changes how you're going to look. Which is later on in life, these people who study this stuff, the scientists can tell if someone has been breathing through their mouth through, through their youth because of the way in which their face has grown. And what that means is it's a longer face, it's a droopier face, the chin is recessed, so you don't have this big powerful chin. Of course, genes and genetics determine a lot of how you're going to look, but epigenetics, these environmental inputs, also have a huge influence of how you're going to grow and your health, including your breathing.
1: So what happened? You did this experiment 10 days. What it was like to be a chronic mouth breather? What happened when you removed the nasal plugs and could breathe through your nose again?
0: Yeah, so the the experiment was never intended to be like some jackass stunt, you know. We were lolling our bodies into a position they already knew and that so much of the population already knew. The the difference was we were calculating everything that was happening. So the good part of the experiment was that the next phase was only nasal breathing. I mean, I'm sure we snuck in some mouth breaths here and there, but the vast majority of the breaths we were taking per day, including all of those at night, were through the nose. We also practiced some breathing techniques along the way. And within the first night, my snoring almost completely disappeared, went down to about 30 minutes. Three nights later, two nights later, it was gone. Uh, I had no sleep apnea, no snoring, blood pressure went down. About 20 points, 30 points from its highest point the previous week. I mean, just a complete transformation. Our athletic endurance increased. We were measuring that. Heart rate variability went through the roof. It was so dramatic, and yet this is such a simple thing to do, to breathe through the nose and not the mouth. And it seems
1: to be completely lost on modern society. So what is it about nasal breathing? Like you said, you, we actually get more oxygen from breathing through our nose than our mouth. Cause that, it makes, doesn't make sense because you're like, well, if I'm breathing through my mouth, I'm getting more air in. What's going on in our nose that allows us to, our body to get more oxygen? Sure. So n- a number of things are
0: happening. First of all, you're pressurizing air and you're slowing it down, which allows more time for oxygen to soak in for gas exchange in your lungs. If you take a breath through your nose... <sighs> You get that negative pressure going in that vacuum. Then as you exhale through the nose, you get that positive pressure. So beyond just that, you get 20% more oxygen equivalent breaths through the nose than through the mouth. That is enormous, especially throughout the day. So other things are happening. With that pressure, you're able to push those soft tissues at the back of the airway further back and, and to help tone them a little more, which opens the airway. If you open your mouth right now, I just learned this trick from Dr. Stephen Park at Albert Einstein Medical Center. If you open your mouth right now, you're going to feel your tongue softly going back into your airway. And as you close your mouth, that tongue is going to gently move up towards the upper palate. When it moves up towards the upper palate, you're opening your airway. Which is also one of the reasons why nasal breathing is so effective with people with mild or even moderate snoring and sometimes even sleep apnea so beyond that i mean it's you know the nose is the first line of defense it filters stuff out produces nitric oxide which interacts directly with viruses there's there's innumerable benefits to nasal breathing and none of that is controversial right you you ask anyone any rhinologist and they
1: know about this stuff. It's just seldom practiced. So, I mean, it sounds like, so, I mean, I think people typically breathe through their mouth and are thinking, well, I got sinus infection, so I can't breathe through my nose. But it sounds like the mouth breathing could be contributing to like the sinus infection and your inability to breathe through your nose. Absolutely. It's a use it or lose it thing. And they've they've found this. The
0: doctor of speech language pathology down at Stanford studied people who had had laryngectomies, little holes drilled in their throat because they had mouth cancer or some other problem. And from two months to two years, their noses were 100% blocked. So zero could get in there. And she found that the more we use your nose, the more those, tissue, those tissues are gonna become acclimated and open up and allow us to use our noses. So with something like chronic sinusitis, which you know 25% of the population suffers from this, like that is a huge number. You gotta find a way of clearing your nose. As Nyack down at Stanford said, if your toilet's plugged, you're going to find a way of clearing it, and the nose has to be considered the same thing.
1: So, I think during uh, during the day, someone can practice intentionally practice nose breathing. But what about at night, right? Like, I mean, and that's the other thing with uh, mouth breathing at night. That's one of the things that leads to bad breath, periodontal disease, as well. So, what do you what can you do to make sure your mouth shut at night? So, so many
0: other issues as well, because when you're breathing through the mouth, you don't have all those structures in the nose that help to humidify and filter and condition air. So breathing through the mouth will release 40% more moisture than breathing through the nose. So I had been a mouth breather at night for as long as I can remember, which is why I would go to bed with a huge glass of water by the bedside every single night, didn't matter if I was in a hotel, and I just thought this was normal to be waking up with a dry mouth, hitting on water, going back to sleep, waking up, hitting on water, going back to sleep it's not normal. <laughs> oh, but, you know, sleeping with your mouth open is not a normal thing. You look at animals in the wild, they're not doing it. So what I had learned at, at Stanford from Dr. Ann Kearney and also from Dr. Mark Berheny is that we can use a teeny piece of tape. Now, I'm not talking about a fat strip of industrial tape or duct tape or anything. A teeny piece about the size of a postage stamp, you place that at the center of your lips. And the point of this isn't to block air from the mouth it's just to train the mouth to be closed at night and i started doing this and recording what happened with my sleep and an extraordinary benefit more oxygenation better sleep longer sleep i mean uh, less resistance in the airway because your mouth is closed. And since this book has come out, which has been a couple months, I've received literally dozens and dozens and dozens of emails from people saying, "Oh my God, why didn't I know about this be- before?" They're no longer snoring. You know, even people with with milder sleep apnea no longer have sleep apnea just by shutting their mouths.
1: I, I did the, the the mouth tape thing, and I, I liked it. It worked. I, I slept pretty nicely. And I mean, instead, I mean that's what I love about this this book. It's such a simple thing, like just breathe through your nose, and you can have all these benefits. Sure, that's
0: that's one of the you know that's the foundation of healthy breathing that everyone needs to adhere to. Is it starts off with first acknowledging that as a species we're messed up. Our faces are messed up. We become the worst breathers in the animal kingdom. The second is, and this is the the most of the book, the foundation of the book is like, okay, we're screwed up. What can we do to fix it? And nasal breathing is,
1: is the first thing. Another thing about breathing, I think when most people think about breathing, they're always thinking about the breathe in part because that feels nice. Your lungs are filling up. You feel like, oh, I'm getting oxygen. But you highlight research that the exhale is just as important. What happens in the exhale whenever we do exhale? And what happens when we neglect that in our breathing? So the only way to get a full nourishing breath in is to
0: get that last breath out, get that stale air out. A lot of us, when we first become aware of our breathing, we just <laughs> putting air on top of air on top of air. But air should be, you know, your breath could be considered like, like a cycle. It needs to cycle in. It needs to cycle out. And what Carl Stau found, and he was this choral conductor in the 50s, who found that few of his singers were really exhaling properly. Uh, they weren't moving their diaphragms up high enough. And by just allowing them to engage more diaphragmatic movement, he completely changed the resonance and the volume of their voices and went on to teach uh, opera singers at the Met Opera this. But he then went on to, for 10 years, helped emphysemics by just increasing diaphragmatic movement by just using breathing he was able to effectively heal these people and have them walk out of the hospital which is extraordinary but it also makes perfect sense these people had lost the ability to breathe properly every single breath they took was a struggle and they were stressing themselves out every moment of every day
1: we're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And how do you, what what do you do with the diaphragm to make sure all that air, like how do you tell your diaphragm, squeeze that air out more? Sure. So breathing is this wonderful
0: thing because we do it unconsciously. We don't have to be thinking about it, but we can also do it consciously. So if you, if everyone just takes a big breath in now through the nose, please, as you breathe in your diaphragm, which is this muscle underneath the lungs, because the lungs don't do anything on themselves. They, they need something to expand them and contract them. That's what the diaphragm does. So when you take that breath in, the diaphragm sinks, okay? And when you exhale, the diaphragm lifts up a little higher into your chest. By increasing the movement of the diaphragm, there's so many benefits to it. But especially considering breathing, it allows you access to more of your lungs. And by having access to more of your lungs, you can get in more air with fewer breaths. You can breathe more efficiently. Breathing is something a lot of us do 25,000 times a day. If you can do it more efficiently, you're going to have Huge benefits from this,
1: as has been clearly studied and seen. One cue that I've used, I've heard to help you ex- exhale, is like just pretend like you're holding your pee, and for some reason that makes the diaphragm go up. I don't know. So that's what I that's what I typically think. I'm holding my pee, and then I for some reason I'm able to get more air out. I haven't tried that one. Uh, I'm going to add that to my to
0: my list of right. activities here. Um, I do know that that Carl Stau, the the researcher who had who had done this and proven this. But he had patients do, and this included Olympians. He was the guy who trained the 1968 track team, US track team to go down to Mexico City. They were the only team that did not use oxygen because they didn't need to because they were breathing properly and they destroyed everybody. It was like the greatest Olympic performance in track ever. And so he would have them start with that inhale. And as they exhaled, he'd have them go 1 and count from 1 to 10 and even when they were out of breath to start whispering it 1 and by doing that and vocalizing while you're doing it you're able to engage more diaphragmatic movement
1: and what that also does it lengthened your breath and this kind of sideways to my next question because this is the most, one of the most counterintuitive things I got from your book. We, when we tip, Like I said earlier, when we typically think of breathing, we think about the oxygen part. Oxygen's good. It nourishes our bodies. It gives us energy we need to do what we need to do. And then CO2, we want to get rid of that because it's waste, right? But you have this interesting research that actually CO2 is an important part of our health. And oxygen, getting oxygen from breathing, it's not typically not a problem. It's like we actually don't have enough CO2 in our system. Can you walk us through this counterintuitive claim?
0: Sure. So a lot of people with with chronic pathologies, people with emphysema or people with other issues can have not not enough oxygen. You look at people with coronavirus, they don't have enough O2. So what what I was talking about and focusing on was was ordinarily healthy people who don't have these underlying conditions. And for healthy people, oxygen is seldom the problem. And you can see this by using a pulse oximeter. And seeing that you have 95, 94, even 97% oxygen in your, in your bloodstream, that's great. But what few people consider, and this blew my mind when I came across it, is that we need a balance of CO2 and oxygen in the body for oxygen to disassociate from hemoglobin to feed our hungry cells. So CO2 is essential in this exchange. And if we don't have enough of it, our bodies have to compensate, and that compensation can start wearing us down. So, you know, when you see people again out jogging, doing CrossFit or whatever, or even sitting you know, at an office in front of a computer and they're breathing, thinking they're getting more oxygen into their tissues and muscles and organs, the opposite is happening, which is why their fingers are cold, which is why they get dizzy in their head. That feeling is caused by constriction, because when you offload too much CO2, you cause vasoconstriction throughout your body.
1: And so, I guess, what, what do you do to increase levels of CO2? Just, I mean, it's breathe less, right? Or breathe in less? <laughs> yeah, breathe normally is, is okay. the key. And what, what that means
0: for the vast majority of us, I've found, is to be breathing less and to be breathing slowly. Because in every breath, you're offloading CO2, right? And that's good. We, we need to offload that CO2 and whatever toxins our bodies are purging through our lungs. Of course, we need to do that. But what you want to do is you don't want to offload too much of it. And So if we were to breathe 10 heavy breaths here, our CO2 levels are going to go down. And when they go down again, our bodies are going to are forced to compensate for that. So, by breathing slowly and breathing as closely in line with your metabolic needs, you're able to use the most breath most efficiently. You're able to do more with less. And that's the key to so much of health and fitness as
1: well. But then you also do, you can do these training things where you actually elevate co2 and you said you did this run that sounded hellish (laughs) uh where you would inhale for three seconds exhale for four inhale for three and then make your exhale five so basically you were like taking in like less oxygen compared to like i i tried that just sitting still and i was like i felt i was never getting a full breath what were you hoping to accomplish by doing that so this, is,
0: this was the more extreme part of this. I, I would suggest people start with the mellower part and breathe, breathe normally, breathe in line with your metabolic needs, which is slower and less. But what they found is there's significant benefits to be had by controlling your breathing to a point. They call it hypoventilation training. So it's when you try to acclimate yourself to higher levels of CO2 and when you do this, when, you, when you're when you out running, and again, I do not suggest anyone do this. Don't do this in your car. I'll do it with a breathing therapist. But when you're out running, you try to double the exhales to, to the inhales. And immediately, you feel all of this circulation throughout your body. You start heating up. I mean, it gets almost psychedelic because what, what that is, is you are increasing circulation and oxygenation throughout your body when you're doing this. You can get to a point where you're breathing so little that your O2 is gonna go down, that's for sure. But at the level we were doing it, our O2 wasn't going down, our CO2 was going way up. And what, what triggers the need to breathe isn't lack of oxygen, it's an increase in CO2. So if you exhale right now and just hold your breath for 30 seconds or whatever, and you feel that need to breathe, that's CO2. It's not oxygen.
1: Well, that's what we talked about that in deep, right? lot, one of the some of the training that freedivers do is they have to get their bodies comfortable with elevated CO2 levels. Exactly.
0: And and so so many of those benefits. I was seeing this research sort of dovetail together. It was it was blowing my mind to see the benefits of of people who have trained with this hypoventilation training increasing their threshold of CO2. And they've found that the benefits of this are similar in many ways to altitude training. You can help build blood. You can pull more energy from lactic acid on and on. This guy, Xavier Warren's in Paris, Paris 13 University, is now researching this stuff big time. And they're actually using it for people with heart conditions. They're lo- using it because it helps people lose weight quicker, because it actually allows you to offload more oxygen and you burn fat with oxygen. So there's, yeah, I included, you know, about 20 references to scientific studies looking at this stuff. And to me, it's, it's fascinating. Just through breathing, you have access to all these different systems in the body.
1: I think you talk about too, like people with asthma, if they do the hypoventilation, it can help with asthma as well. It makes a
0: huge difference with so many people. And And again, I included, I think, 50 studies showing how slower breathing by breathing less can really help people with asthma. Asthmatics as a population tend to breathe way more than the rest of us, and they tend to breathe from their mouth. So, they're exposing themselves to everything, all the pollutants, allergens, whatever else in the environment, all the time, which can exacerbate their allergic reaction to asthma. If you think about someone with asthma, the last thing they want to do is suffer another asthma attack. So, they become so sensitized to CO2 that whenever they think they're having an attack, what do they do? <sighs> They breathe more and more and more, which causes more constriction, which, guess what, brings on an attack. So by teaching them to breathe normally, I call it breathing less, but it's actually teaching them to just breathe normally in line with their metabolic needs, they've shown
1: huge benefits for people with asthma. And so just to recap here, the reason why elevated CO2 is necessary or you need CO2 is that it's what allows your body or your blood to, or your body to take the oxygen off the blood cell and use it. That's part that's of it. That's right. To more, okay. more efficiently. It allows more your body to do okay. this more efficiently, yes. Okay. So you, you mentioned earlier our, our mouths are, are jacked up because of, of modern life. We eat soft foods, and so our teeth are all crammed. This affects breathing because constricts the nasal passages as well. It makes our teeth growing crooked. And so, I mean, this happens to kids, and that's why they go to the orthodontist. They get palate expanders, braces, straighten that out. Is it possible to reverse this in adulthood? Like can we can we make our mouths more like our ancestors, or is it too late for us?
0: Well, the key as with anything is preventative maintenance, right? When when you're young, it's so important to have proper habits, to be closing your mouth, to not be mouth breathing at night. They've shown that breastfeeding versus bottle feeding is so beneficial to to airway health. Eating harder foods can ha- that masticatory stress can benefit mouth growth. But, you know, for me, youth was was many decades ago. So I'm kind of hosed. And my mouth is, we took CAT scans of my sinuses and I'm as messed up as anyone. Deviated septum, clogging here and there. Small mouth, I had braces, extractions, headgear, all that crap. So it turns out that we can change a lot of, of what we have in adulthood. First of all, we can tone the airway. We can do this. Through oral pharyngeal exercises, these tongue exercises, this sounds a little crazy, but it makes perfect sense. The tongue's a muscle, very powerful muscle. When we don't use it, when, when we're eating soft foods and we're not using it properly, it can grow out of shape just like anything else. So by toning that tongue, you can increase your airway health. And that's been been widely shown but you can also help expand your too small mouth even in adulthood. If, if people are listening there and you have a clean thumb, don't do this if, if you know, you've know you been touching doorknobs or whatever, you can put your thumb on the top of your upper palate. And right in the middle of that upper palate, there is a suture. And these are the same sutures that are in the skull. Now you can feel your skull and feel all these little ridges and cracks. So that suture can open a virtually any age, I think up into your 70s, which means the upper palate can be expanded at any age. When you expand that upper palate, you expand your airways. So I use this device called a block just to see if these claims were true. And I wore this thing at night for a year. We took a CAT scan before and after. And I had huge benefits from this. My airway opened up, I think, about 15, almost 20%, which is enormous. And I even built bone in my face, which we had been told is impossible. Bone mass only goes down once we're in our 30s. We can model it in one bone right in the middle of our faces. So, and the CAT scans proved
1: it. So, yeah, that helped you. They expanded the airway, so it helped you breathe better. That first section is amazing because it's just about basic things you can do to improve your breathing significantly. It's just breathe through your nose, breathe more slowly than you think you need to breathe, than you are, probably are breathing right now. And then the second half of the book, you talk, it's called breathe, Breathing Plus. And you wanted to like explore like the, the fringes. This is like you're going back to like your deep territory, right? <laughs> the fringes of breathing. And you talk about some of these people who are doing some crazy stuff with breathing. One of these guys we've talked about on our podcast is Wim Hof. And he does a type of breathing that has allowed him to, you know, he can warm up his body. It can his, his causes his immune system to kill you know, bacteria on demand. Where did he, what kind of breathing is is he doing? And where did he get this idea of this sort of breathing where you can basically take over involuntary aspects of your your body? Mm-hmm.
0: So I wanted to start with, you know, in the book, start start with the problem real quick and start with the foundation that anyone can benefit from. Doesn't matter if you're an elite athlete or an asthmatic or whatever, just as you mentioned, nasal breathing, exhaling, breathing slower, breathing less. Huge foundation of science supporting that. Not a lot of people are going to disagree with it. But also, you know, you hear stories about Wim Hof, you hear about things like holotropic breathwork, these these breathing practices that require more effort, right? Uh, This isn't just, oh, I'm gonna breathe through my nose. Like they require some concerted effort to do this stuff. But I was curious to see how far breathing could take us, what it could do to really heal ongoing chronic maladies, what it could do to move us up that next level of human potential. And what Wim, you know, everyone calls it Wim Hof Method, but he's been very clear that he didn't invent any of this stuff. His breathing method has been around for thousands of years. People have been superheating their bodies with this. The Bon Buddhist monks have been doing this for for so long. And, And what they all have, so you can call it different things, Tumo Wim Hof Method, Pranayama, but they're all doing the same things. They're allowing you to control your breath, and when you control your breath You can then take control of certain elements of your autonomic nervous system, which was supposed to have been, according to Western medicine, beyond our control. That's BS. We can absolutely control it. When you start controlling that, you can start controlling immune function, which is why these people, I talked to dozens of these people, had autoimmune diseases, arthritis, psoriasis, diabetes, I mean, on and on and on. And once they started using these methods to breathe, they were able to either blunt these symptoms or some of them claim to have outright cured them. And they've measured their progress with real real measurements, real science. And I just thought that this was fantastic and amazing. It seems too good to be true, but look what Wim's done. He's been studying in labs all over the world right now. We're, we're just starting to crack this thing open, which is really exciting.
1: Yes, uh, you talked about this one guy. He was, an, I think, a Hindu monk. He came to the United States um, and he kind of went on this whirlwind tour, but he was doing crazy stuff. He was w- with breathing, he was able to control his heartbeat. So it he only beat once every 300 seconds. So, like, people thought he was dead. Like, the doctors thought he was dead, but he was actually still alive. Yeah, this was on the,
0: on the, outer fringes of breathing. I tried to find the best breather in history, and there's stories of these people, you know, who can superheat their bodies for hours at a time, melt snow, melt wet sheets, and we know this is true. Herbert Benson at, at Harvard has studied these guys extensively, and anyone can look that up online and, and find those studies. Published in Nature, the most prestigious scientific journal in the world. So the, I think the, the best breather that I could find that there was some scientific foundation to was this guy Swami Rama grew up in the Himalayas in the 70s he came to the states to kind of show what he could do and they studied him at the manager clinic a Navy physicist studied him with all the latest instruments at that time so this wasn't you know some new age dude in in uh, India this this was a real scientist and they found that he could flutter his heartbeat, at a, at a rate of 300 beats per minute for 30 seconds at a time. Apparently, he could do it for much longer than that, which would it's called atrial fibrillation, which, which would kill most of us. But he was able to do this on command. Even more amazingly, he was able to shift the blood flow in his hand about 11 degrees from his thumb to his finger. So one side was all gray and the other side was, was all red with circulation. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And these measurements, this, these reports were published in the New York Times. They were measured very carefully by experts in the field. And still, people find it pretty hard to believe anyone could have this control over their systems. But I think Wim is kind of the new reincarnation of Swami Rama, and he's, he's busting down what we thought was possible time and time again.
1: So we we know it happens because there's there's yep. data the back, but like do scientists know why breathing is the key to unlocking or controlling these auto these automatic functions in our body? Because breathing is helps you control your nervous system function.
0: If if you were to inhale right now to a count of about three and then exhale to a count of about twelve, you're gonna feel your heart rate go down slower and slower and slower. That's because you're stimulating your parasympathetic response when you're exhaling. And we know that when you're in this rest and relaxation parasympathetic response, you are increasing circulations to, to different organs in your body. You are decreasing inflammation. So if you're talking about how breathing is healing people, this is not some crazy placebo effect. This is physiological. This is the most basic you know, medicine of, of how the how the body works and how it can retain balance. And what's so great about it is it's measurable. So to to directly answer your question, so how can Wim sit in an ice bath for two hours and not have his core temperature go down? How can he not suffer from any damage to his limbs or, or hypothermia or frostbite or anything? We still don't know. And we still don't know how the Bond Buddhist are able to do this either. and this is what I get into at the end of the book. It's there are still mysteries to breath as far as heating yourself up and keeping it sustained at that level. And I hope science is going to be checking that out and discovering exactly how to do it and how it works. But I think it's thrilling that we think we have everything figured out. We're just on the cusp of understanding the true potential of breathing right now.
1: Did you try any of these advanced breathing techniques? And like, what was your experience with it? I tried them all.
0: Yeah. As a, as a journalist, I want to be able to write from the inside of these things. Um, There were several studies that didn't make it into the book. We just didn't have room. So I tried this one Sudarshan Kriya, which is very similar to Wim Hof method. I went to the University of California, San Francisco hypoxia lab, and they hooked me up to all of these different measurements, the catheters in my veins on a gurney. I mean, all this crap. And I so completely freaked out the people doing this, doing this study that, uh, because I was able to make my blood so alkaline to about 7.68, which if they saw someone with, with blood like this, they would immediately put them into an ER and say, this person's about to die. But something amazing happens when you consciously will yourself into these states, they can be incredibly healing. They make you more flexible. They make you more resilient. So, you know, holotropic, I did that. I do Wim Hof breathing. I keep calling it that, but it's really Tumo, been around forever. I do that about three or four times a week. You know, it's just, this has just become a part of my life. I've seen the science. I've seen the benefits in my own body. And it seems this stuff is free. It's available to everyone. And I want to take
1: advantage of that. Well, you also, you came to my hometown, Tulsa, to do, (laughs) to breathe in CO2. I didn't know you lived in Tulsa. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dr.
0: Justin Feinstein is out there doing some incredible NIH-funded research looking into the role of CO2 therapy for people with chronic anxiety, chronic fear-based problems. You see like the amount of people with panic, I think it's about 10%, chronic anxiety, I think it's about a quarter of the population. That includes people with anorexia and other other serious issues. They aren't really being helped. We know that SSRIs, Prozac and all of that is not really that much more effective than placebos, even though people have been using them for 30 years, which is absolutely wild. So he is introducing CO2 into their bodies and helping them to become more flexible and tolerant of it so that they will be able to breathe more comfortably at a slower rate and let their bodies heal themselves. And again, this is, he's one of the top researchers in this field. This is NIH-funded research. I was able to go out there and go through his study, inhale CO2, and uh, I think the results are going to be published uh, in a couple years. It's a very
1: long research study. Sounds frightening. It feels like you're <laughs> suffocating, basically, but you're not. He's like, "No, you're fine. You got plenty of oxygen. You're going to be okay. It's going to feel like you're 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 drowning, but you're okay." Yeah, it sucked. I'm not gonna, uh, you know, I'm not <laughs> gonna gloss
0: over it. What What happens is when you're introduced to this much CO two, and he gave me a double dose, just to be clear, far above what the other people, uh, the other patients in this study were giving. I said, "Go for it." I've never had a panic attack. So what he was essentially doing was eliciting a panic attack in my body. So I was hooked up to all these instruments and I was able to see on a computer monitor, my oxygen didn't change at all. It was steady the whole time, but he introduced this huge amount of CO2 and I felt, I experienced what a panic attack felt like. And I feel so sorry for these people now because uh, it lasts for a long time, sweating, everything becomes, your vision becomes narrowed. It was awful. But the more acclimated to more CO2 you become, the easier that gets. So if I would have gone back and done that over and over again, as he does with his patients, that experience would have become lessened and lessened and lessened the longer I did it.
1: That's super weird, but also hopeful. Well, well, James, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? My website, mrjamesnester.com.
0: You can put a backslash breath in there. I put all scientific references there. There are free breathing videos from the experts in the field, FAQ, all that. I'm also trying to get better at this social media thing, bit of a dinosaur. So on my Instagram page, I'm posting little videos and other pictures along this journey and
1: new breathing research. Fantastic. Well, James Nestor, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. My guest was James Nestor. He's the author of the book, Breath, the new science of a lost art. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, mrjamesnester.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash breath. We can find links to resources when we delve deeper into this topic. Well, That wraps up another edition of the A1 podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the A1 podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the to continue support, until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you all only listening to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun...